You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. We preserve the history and sport of hunting through curious conversation and action-packed hunts, as well as offering you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. Welcome to the Successful Seasons series for the Hunter's Advantage podcast, where the whole goal of this series is to break down the tactics and reasons that folks are consistently successful in harvesting big whitetails, whether on public land or on private. We're going to dig into some of the highlights of these folks' successful seasons and then talk about some of the mistakes they made and how they would correct them. If you want to learn from some absolute whitetail killers from across the country, this is the series for you. Let's get into Successful Seasons. Welcome back to the Hunter's Advantage podcast. This is episode number 139. We're continuing our successful seasons series on this episode, but today we're joined by Noah Gould. Thanks for thanks for jumping on with us, man. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm trying to fix my my tag right there, but got it now. But oh, there you go. There yeah. you go. You got to get the handle in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can't lose can't lose the uh opportunity to get a few followers if they want to see the socials. But anyways, Thanks for uh, thanks for jumping on with us, man. Really appreciate it. Um, I think I described it to you a little bit before the episode started. Jake's been on a few of these, but um, we're doing a successful season series. So we're walking through postseason of what um, what all went into a successful season of last year, and talking a little bit about the tips, the tactics that allow people to continuously harvest really big bucks across the country, and. Um, it looks like you had a great season. We're going to dig into some of that on the start of the hunting side, but I wanted to start maybe a little bit more high level. Can you give us, you did a really good job giving us a background in the email about yourself. Yeah. Uh, can you basically give that same background to the listeners? Yeah, for sure. So, um, grew up in Wisconsin my whole life, pretty much, uh, born and raised in Ohio, I guess, until I moved to Wisconsin. And, uh, that was when my hunting passion really took place. Um, my family's got a hundred year old farm here in Northeastern Wisconsin. Um, so I grew up bow hunting that uh, probably around the age of 10 and then, um, just got introduced into food plotting, habitat management through my family, um, and, and on that farm. And then over this past, the past two years, we've been buying property kind of towards Western Wisconsin, kind of extending our reach that way where, where there's better hunting. I mean, you got like Buffalo County, Trempolo, Jackson, all those, all those big buck con- counties. And that's kind of where I've been focusing my, my hunting tactics, uh, over in that area lately. But yeah, I do, I do public hunting, private, you name it. I do it. What's your favorite? <laughs> it's my, if you would have asked me before this year, I would have said I liked public hunting, um, mm. just because. I guess I had never shot anything too giant, like a lot of 130 class to 140s. And then um, my my most memorable deer was definitely on public. I shot that probably three years ago. And it was my first sit-in, first morning of like a five-day trip over in western Wisconsin. Shot him on that first sit. And that was like my most memorable deer. I've never worked harder for a deer other than that one. Um, until this year, I'd done a lot of the the habitat improvements on our new farm. And I was able to shoot a, a 160 
So that is tied, I would say. Uh, but I like hunting private as well. But hunting wise, public, but like the whole management side is is what I like the most about hunting. It's funny. Jake, there was a so my dad used to work at like a an error or a farming equipment manufacturer, and there was this guy that was his boss from Wisconsin. Uh, and I know people are from Wisconsin because just how they say the state name is just completely different from the way I say it. Can't but, yeah. yeah, we took this guy hunting in Oklahoma and uh, like he was just trying to get a doe, Jake, over on the Ponderosa. And like three mature does ran by him and we were like, dude, why didn't you shoot? And he said, he said, uh, shoot. He said, those things are as big as my damn Labrador. He said, those were, those were fawns. <laughs> and I was like, dude, they're not like Wisconsin deer. They're, those, those are big, you know, hundred pounds is a big doe. So he let them all go because he thought they were all fawns. <laughs> that's the thing. Like that's, that's one thing I kind of noticed like, uh, branching off into Kansas this year is like literally the deer in like Southern Oklahoma versus just the deer, even in Southern Kansas is like night and day difference. Like the tracks like on the edges of these, uh, of the soybean fields and all that stuff, they were massive. Like I, uh, it was either during like the summer or during like the opening weekend, like in September or something, I found this track and I literally put like a, like a wild game innovation trail camera, like down next to it. And it was dang near the same size. And I was like, we're hunting cows out here. Like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. What do you got to <laughs> shoot? Like 800 grain arrows up there? Noah to kill one. Uh, I shoot a pretty he- heavy arrow setup. I want to th- say it's like 600 grains, but nothing, nothing too crazy. Um, more shot location, and then for my rifle, I use a pretty good, pretty good rifle caliber. I use a 300 Win Mag for for deer up here, but it's probably pretty average. I don't know what you guys use. 30 out six, 300 yeah, 30 man. out six. Yeah. So, do you uh, have you hunted any deer not in the Midwest? None of these big cow looking deer. Any no, small I've southern done, deer? I've done Missouri, uh, like south central Missouri, western Missouri, northern Missouri. That's about as south south as I've hunted. Um, but even there, there's there is definitely difference in body size. I shot one down there uh, with my bow last January, and I mean that thing was maybe a hundred and sixty pounds dressed out. But I don't know if that's for you guys, if that's a big deer. I was going to say, what are you bragging or something? That's a big one. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I don't know if we already covered this because like my mind's been kind of everywhere today. How, how close are you to Buffalo County? So one, the farm that we just bought um, in April is 220 acres. That one's probably five miles as the crow flies from the Buffalo County line over into Trimpolo. So So it's kind of, it's kind of a hidden gem, like, it's still the same type of deer, less bluffs, less steep. So it's a lot easier to hunt actually to, to kill the bucks if you have them on your farm, mm-hmm. but, but the genetics are still really good there. I got you. So is all the hype true about Buffalo County? Because according to the Boone and Crockett, like record book and stuff, like that's the place to be. It used to be, I think. It used to be. Um, there's still pockets hidden in there, um, like in the Northwestern and Northern part of the County. Um, a lot of like the big tracks that are owned there produce a lot of really nice deer. Um, and then kind of sprinkled in there, there's really good neighborhoods around there. And the further East you go over into, into Trimpolo and Jackson County, the hunting stays just as good, but you just have to find like a really good QDM block and you can consistently see a, 
160, 170 every year on, on camera to chase after. Heck yeah. Man. Can't complain about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, not one bit. So I saw um, in the email you sent us when we asked you a little bit more clarifying questions, you said that you guys, uh, you and your father own over like 900 acres. Can you kind of break across Wisconsin? Can you break that down into how big of parcels to like how big to how small um, in the range that you have there? Yeah. So our main farm was, was 650 acres in Northeastern Wisconsin. And it's not a great area to, to hunt. I mean, Usually on a good year, we'll have like a 140, maybe a 150 max to, to chase. And then like a couple 130s and 120s in there. Um, but but for track size, that's the largest. But we sold off 100 acres. We're currently doing that right now. Trying to do a, a 1031 exchange to buy another 140 acre farm over in that Trimplow area to, to add on to our farm over there. So that's 140 acres is, is what we'll be buying. And then, um, so we got a 220, 140, and 550. Gotcha. Do you see a lot of small uh, acreage pieces? Like, I know you talk about some of the habitat work that you do for plans and stuff. Like, what's the smallest, like, piece piece of land you guys will do a plan on? I just did a 15-acre plan for a dude. Um, But he butts up to, like, 600 acres of, of privately owned land. And I guess they, they QD him pretty hardcore. So he wanted this 15 acres laid out as good as it possibly could have been. And the only thing with, with that farm is it was all field and ag coming in. So I recommended he had to, to plant either some switch or miscanthus so he could get in and out and have that grow up uh, as soon as possible. So he can start hunting it efficiently without spooking them in the mornings going into hunt. But usually like, 15 to 20 acres is a pretty small tract that'll map up. Hmm. I only ask because I've got a buddy that has a, uh, he's got a 20 acre piece in North Texas and similar to what you were saying, he's, he's surrounded by, um, a big block of like 400 acres of privately owned timber. And yeah. he's like the only ag around. And he was like, well, what should I do to create more bedding on this place? And I was like, dude, 98% of the stuff around here is bedding. Like yeah. there's, there's no food. And, um, so I, we can talk a little bit more, more about that later, but I did, since we're kind of alluding to it here, can we, can you talk a little bit about your role in building habitat plans and then kind of how you got started as far as, uh, designing layouts for like deer hunting farms? Yeah. So I guess I started out just messing around on, on our main farms that we have, um, really, doing food plots, kind of learning how to get them to grow as good as I can. And then from there, kind of designing out like staying locations, blind locations, the best entrance exit routes to those plots, um, all keeping in mind like wind direction. Um, so I started doing that just on our main farms since I was like 15 years old. And then uh, over the past couple of years, I started doing it for some friends. I did a 350 acre farm up in Northeastern Wisconsin as well for a buddy. And, and we, I went through with a logger, cleared out like 15 acres of oaks, added food plots. And, um, that was like the first farm that I had officially designed out. It was pretty cool. Cause they were able to shoot a, a 160 the, the next year off of it. And they had never even shot like a 120 off of it. So hmm. it was, it was pretty cool putting the pieces together 
but recently I started working for a dude, um, or I guess helping him out, design some maps out, uh, take, take over some of his workload. And basically you, you reach out to us and, and I'll do an in-person or, or over the phone consultation with you and then decide what's the best route for your property and, and making the habitat better, whether it's selective harvest, food, um, better entrance or hunting stand locations, uh, pretty much everything that you see, like Jeff Sturgis or Brett Smith, any any of the Don Higgins, any anything they're doing is is basically what I'm teaching as well, but with my own kind of spinoff to it. Um, gotcha. Cause that, uh, yeah, because everybody has their own ideas on, on what works best and stuff. So, right. So, are you pretty tree savvy? Like, you know what trees what for the most part pretty tree savvy but as you go down further south i don't do as much like recommendations with like non-invasives and invasives because i don't know as much about it no the reason i say that is because the only trees i know is like a pine tree and then like an oak tree and don't ask me if it's a white oak a, a bur oak i have no earthly idea but i am trying to get better at that so how long did it take you to like know your stuff uh that's well, I guess for like the red and white oaks, I started out like when I was probably like 14 or 15, kind of learning the difference between those. Um, and that was always easy just because we have a ton of them around. And then, and you can think of it as like acorns, like um, the Native American shot, their, their bow and arrow with, and the, and the arrows pointed, right? Mm-hmm. So the leaves on a red oak are pointed versus a white oak we used like muskets and shit back then. So yeah. they were rounded. So the leaves on, on the white oaks are more rounded. That's how you can tell like between okay. a red and white oak, but for, for everything else, it just takes time. Uh, you have to like want to learn about it and, and it kind of comes easy if, if you love doing it and, and like to learn more about their habitat. Right. Cause like at deer camp and stuff, if you get around like, an older group they're like oh yeah you know what tree were you sitting in it's just like one that has leaves i don't know you know (laughs) it it sounds bad and it's just like i want to be that guy like i want to be a good hunter for sure but like when it's all said and done like i want to be a good woodsman like yeah when it comes down to it and it's just like you know it's a process but in all honesty i'm an idiot so it's going to be a slow process yeah, and everybody has a learning curve, and there's a process for everybody that might be different. But um, for me, it was just kind of looking through books and, and different biology books and reading about trees and stuff and bark and everything. But um, you just learn more as you start to do it and dive into it. Yeah, man, you can't tell you can't tell a chick that on a date. What do you like to do? I like to read about bark and, <laughs> yeah. and trees. <laughs> I don't know. I had a few chicks in field botany that, that really was, that was their jam. Yeah. (laughs) It's anyways. That's awesome. (laughs) So what do you, uh, what do you enjoy the most about the habitat improvement stuff? Is it, you know, um, a lot of people do it for a lot of different reasons. Maybe some people want to improve the, the deer hunting on their property just so they can watch them. Some people want to kill bigger bucks. Some people just want to see more deer. What is it that you enjoy most about, be able to lay out these plans and do habitat improvements. My, I guess it's, it depends if I'm talking about my farm. Um, I just like to see the impact I've made on the deer herd. 
um, maybe maybe see bigger bucks and, and obviously shoot nicer bucks. But for other people, I do it just to like see them shoot nice deer. I mean, that's like the the main goal in the end is to have them successfully turn their farm into a farm that is producing deer of, of the caliber they want to shoot. And certain areas can definitely do that, but other areas might not be as good genetically and you just have to accept what you can shoot realistically in, in different areas. But but I so, would say probably just shooting nice deer and then actually seeing the impact that you're making in the deer herd. Yeah, that's that's cool. We don't get to do a lot of that because we don't own any property. We have a bunch of lease properties. So doing TSI or planting a bunch of food or doing anything that has to do with cutting or planting trees is not going to happen for us. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the most common things that like you go into a farm, you walk the place. What are some of the things that people, you see people doing the most wrong and what are some of the easiest improvements that most people can make to their farms? Is it stand locations or, or what, what do you got? Probably just, yes, stand locations and access. I mean, just because your access might be easy for one stand might not make it the best access for that stand. Um, a lot of people don't realize that. They'll be like, oh, but it's just 200 yards down this field edge. Um, it's super easy to slip into in the morning. But not only should you not be slipping in in the morning on a field edge, spooking the deer off the field, then coming back back your way to to bed but you got to come through the bedding in the mornings early get set up and catch them before they even know that you're set up Um, so access is a big thing how they access their property and then you have to create sanctuaries for the deer that they feel safe in all year long Um, that your wind's not going into that you're not going into to check cameras or anything um sanctuaries are are a big key to to keep the deer herd uh healthy and and stay on your property all year long good point i i was thinking i was typing out some notes there because we were talking about just a few minutes earlier about one of my buddies has 20 something acres in north texas like eight 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 of those acres were planted in like uh oats and winter wheat and kind of just a big a big mix of different things and on the far uh, western part of the property, there was a great stand location that you could just walk up into um, from a bunch of thick grass and get up in and not disturb the field at all. He had another stand location along a creek that was way to the east side of the property, and one of his buddies was um, saying he had had some really good hunts there. And I was the first question that I had for him, I was like, how do you ever get into that stand? Like, one, because you have to walk across all your other stands and all of your food to get to it. So, um, not like you're going to get caught one of two ways. Um, one, when you're walking in, all those deer are going to walk past the path that you've walked in. And then two, it's like, it was just like really, it was super weird access, but the way this part, this piece laid out, I just didn't see a way where you could hunt that into the field. And maybe I'm, I'm wrong on that, but I don't, I don't know that that one kind of perplexed me a little bit. Yeah. Sometimes an area might be really good, but it's just, you can't get at it. And I'd recommend just staying out of that most times, unless you have, I mean, there's certain situations. If you got a deer pegged on camera coming out in the same spot every night and you know that 
if you slip in for an evening sit or something, you're going to spook them off the food in the evening that you better shoot them that first sit in. Um, otherwise you've got one chance at that deer. And there's been scenarios that me and my buddies have, have hunted public or, or private and decided to do sits like that. And, uh, you just have to be like right on them when they come out that way. Um, you, you kill them the first sit in, in a spot like that. Otherwise you're kind of ruining the property for, for a little while, at least. I called that a, I called that spot like risk it for the biscuit. Yeah. Like this is a good spot. Cause, um, the, his buddy was telling me, or one of my buddies was like, yeah, but you can have some really, really good hunts in here. You know, one time I had like 40 deer within bow range and I was like, I'm not doubting that you could have good hunts in here. I was like, but you're one, one doe catching a track for away from losing every, anything mature within a few hundred yards. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. You could do that, but it's like, that's definitely a very, uh, very few and far between on scenarios. I'd be willing to do something like that. Yeah. Most of the times that we've tried it out, it does not work. That deer will come out and they just, sometimes they just have like a sixth sense that, that they know you're there in a, in an area that they feel so safe in. And, um, you have to take everything into consideration when you're doing that, like thermals, wind direction, uh, the, the trail you walked in on it all has to play to your favor for that one sit. Um, otherwise it, it's probably not worth it nine times out of 10. I got a question though. Are you a moon guy? I, I've definitely considered different things when it comes to moon. Um, but do I follow the, the red moon phase and everything? Not necessarily. I'm not going to go out and buy the guide for the red moon phase. Right. But but I do think that that it could play an effect with with deer movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, because the only reason I say that is because I haven't dug too deep into it, but it seems like uh, so on this private piece I hunt there, like I got two stands in there. One's just like maybe 50 yards tucked up into a timber. And then a few hundred yards away, uh, I have a blind kind of along the edge of this field. And I don't know what it what it was, but it seems like every single time there was a full moon or something. And the only reason I, I, I knew or I paid attention to it was a full moon because if I sat in a blind, it seemed like I could shoot 30 minutes after it got dark. And so I was like, it seems like I see more deer on a full moon in the evening. That's just what it seemed. I mean, I know this is all yeah. anecdotal, but I just didn't know if like you had any experience with that. No, I know a lot of people do. Uh, follow that moon guide pretty good but it's just never something that i've actually put into place i i look at more like barometric pressure and and cold fronts versus anything mm-hmm. um and then just like the patterns that i have on the deer i mean i'm running like 40 different cell cams so i kind of know how oh the god deer what's your bill a month <laughs> <laughs> pretty pretty good pretty good i bet bill. i bet I had, yeah. I had two cell cams this, uh, this season finally. And every single time it was like 40 bucks come out of my bank account. And I was like, damn it. Like, I just hate spending money on myself. It, but then again, I can go buy, uh, a bag of corn and that's basically it for yeah the whole month worth of cell cams. So it's whatever. True. Just t- take your licks. <laughs> so staying on kind of in the vein of the habitat improvement stuff is, how um how would you go about? I know you talked about miscanthus a little bit earlier, and maybe switchgrass. How would you go about creating 
betting on a property with limited limited timber. And I think a good example of this is Jake, your your place where you hunt quite a bit is there's a very select, very few amounts of timber, but you have a very big piece of um, field that could be utilized for some sort of bedding in between two giant blocks of timber. So I'm just wondering, is that something that you guys will do is try to create bedding areas just with grass? Yeah. So the, the 140 acre farm that we're buying currently, um, we close on that in March. That's probably 50, 50 ag to timber, um, which is more ag than I'd typically like to see in a property, um, or, or a larger sized farm anyways. And there, the, the goal that I had when looking at that was the neighborhood. It was a great neighborhood but I knew that I could do a lot to that property to make it better and make the deer bed on the property. So my idea was I was adding about 15 acres of, of switchgrass bedding. Um, but the deer won't want just switchgrass, right? Cause it's kind of a monoculture. There's no browse for them there. There's not a ton of overhead cover in switchgrass. So that's why like diversity pockets planted within those switchgrass areas were really allow the deer to to want to bed in those locations so like adding conifers like spruce or or red cedar into those pockets with maybe like raspberry bushes or or red oak or dogwood any of that stuff added within that switchgrass will make it more desirable and and better bedding for those deer but getting a, a good switchgrass stand is pretty tough if you don't know what you're doing otherwise you're kind of just tossing money out because it's kind of pricey uh, for an acre of switchgrass, it's like a hundred bucks. Um, Dang. But yeah, it's it's definitely a good thing to be able to do that stuff with the switch, but you just have to do it right. Yeah. Correct. The Hunters Advantage podcast is powered by Out on a Limb Manufacturing. Out on a Limb is a family-owned company based right here in Oklahoma that makes tree stands, saddle platforms, climbing sticks, and so much more. Christian, I have a quick question. What's that? What bites sound harder, a hippo or an alligator? No idea. It's a trick question. The Ridge Runner 2.0 bites harder than both of them. But all jokes aside, we use these products all across the land on public or private. These help us get into any tree we want and hunt where the deer actually are. Most men go to the grocery store for their meat, but these products help you go to God's grocery store. I have used the Out on a Limb Ridge Runner 2.0 and the Shakar Sticks for the last few years hunting public land bucks, and I've actually shot several bucks out of this setup. If you want to support the podcast and get some Out on a Limb equipment, make sure to go to outonalimmfg.com and use code HNTA10 for 10% off at checkout. Once again, if you want to support the podcast... Go to outonalimmfg.com and use code HNTA10 at checkout for 10% off. Now let's get back to the podcast. When you all like either go and uh, like select clutter, select cut or clear cut, or uh, you plant that, that, uh, that tall grass, do you all try to do that in a way that it's not super easy for like predators, like coyotes or something to, somewhat uh make it easy for him to like find the the newly dropped fawns because i heard something either on a podcast or something saying that like if you only have like a strip of timber or a little block of timber something that it doesn't take a lot of grid searching for a coyote to run up and down like that could be pretty bad for like the fawn drop i guess that's not something that i normally consider 
Um, usually in our area, the coyotes aren't, aren't, aren't too crazy. A lot of people run dogs for them. I hunt them as well. Um, so they're not, they're not crazy. And most of the time they're going after rabbits and pheasants cause we have plenty of those around. I got you. Um, but that's not something that I think of too much just because we do a pretty good job of controlling the coyotes around us. But the more North you go in Wisconsin, the more wolves there are. So, uh, that's something that you definitely have to consider going more North. Have, okay. Since you opened up that can of worms, have you ever oh, no. went wolf hunting? No, no, I've never no. gone. I've, I've seen them a couple times in Northern Wisconsin driving down the roads, but I've never seen them while hunting or Dude, anything. That's something I want to do. Like if, if I could put one thing in a bucket list, like besides going to Alaska and hunting something, I would want to go to like, like, uh, Idaho or just somewhere and just see one of those big old, uh, dog looking <laughs> things to frick. Yeah. I want to hunt one pretty bad. Yeah. There's plenty of them in Wisconsin, but, um, our, I guess the the state doesn't want as many harvested as we have been in the past, but I think they're back on the endangered species list here. So we're not oh, really? technically allowed to hunt them. Yeah. So they had opened up a hunt. I think it was last year for the wolves and they had a 200, 200 wolf quota. And uh, it was kind of like they gave out 500 people, the tags for the 200 wolves. And that first day, um, they killed maybe like 110. So they had had it open the second day as well. So all 500 people went out or a thousand, whatever it was. And they shot like 300 or 200 wolves over the quota. That's how many wolves, wolves there are in Wisconsin, but, but nobody wants to admit that. Um, So there's there's definitely, there's an issue with the DNR and the amount of wolves here, but I bet. Huh. So, so do like, uh, certain farmers have, have like a pretty big issue with that? Uh, it's mostly Northern Wisconsin. There's like no deer in Northern Wisconsin. You go up there and the wolves are just really overrun. The winters are so harsh on the deer too. I mean, you're getting like two, three feet of snow in some areas. Um, then you add on the wolves and there's not, not much of a deer herd in the fuck in like the Northern third of the state. I get you. That's kind of nuts. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. So like, after this question, I'll get off topic, but, uh, relatively like how many, like, is it like the size of like a great Dane? Cause I've never seen one in real life. It kind of depends. I had one on camera this last year. It was probably the size of like a German shepherd. Okay. And, and it's, it's like a noticeable difference from a coyote, but there's, there's timber wolves and then there's, um, then there's gray wolves. The gray wolves are typically a lot bigger than those timber wolves. And those are the ones that were, were introduced from, from Yellowstone. Um, so those are the bigger type of wolves. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how long ago it was, but I seen this picture on Facebook and it was like either, a either the bucket of a tractor lifted up or it was hanging on, on a, on a tree limb or something, but it was a comparison between a wolf and then a dog and then, or no, 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 not a dog, a coyote. And then ever since then, I was like, that kind of got me hooked. I was like, I want to get one. Yeah. It's, it's, you can get them up to like 180, 200 pounds, but, but usually the, the timber wolves are like in that 120 pound range, 100 pound range. I get you. That's high. So I got, I got a couple more questions on the, on the bedding subject before I move on from it. Um, let's say hypothetically, cause I know a guy that has a situation. 
and I might as well get like a freelance consulting mom yeah. on this podcast. Um, let's say somebody's got like eight acres of like contiguous um, food, right? And there's some variety of foods in that. There's some soybeans mixed into it. And there's uh, maybe like a deadly dozen of just regular greens into it. Would you consider in a big block of food like that? I, I, I would see that access could be a problem, right? Cause those deer can come out from anywhere and you could really only slip in from one side before you're starting to disturb it. If you can, if it's set up that way, would you consider putting any, any switchgrass or muscantis or anything in between that plot to kind of break it up into different smaller plots to hunt in? Yeah, for sure. I would, one of the first things that I'd look at is like edge feathering, um, whether that's switchgrass around the outside of your plot or field trees dropped around the outside um, that just makes sure that the deer want to like pop out into the food source without just like looking out and seeing there's nothing in there. They have to come out. They have to come out and feed. Um, that's a big thing that I do first. And then like just dividing that, that up into smaller sections definitely reduces the, the pressure for the deer. I mean, they don't want to have 40, 40 deer packed into one food plot. They'd rather have, 10 here, five here, seven here. They'd rather have it broken up from, from my experience. Um, so maybe, yeah, breaking it up would, would be a big thing. And then it all, it all depends how many deer you have in your area and every property is different. And I look at every property with a, with a different view, just because like deer herd, the amount of deer, hunting pressure it all plays a role in, into that i mean if you had a eight acre food plot in northeastern wisconsin where there's a 40 everywhere you might only have nocturnal deer on that food source versus if you had a quarter acre plot in the timber somewhere you'll probably have a lot more daylight action there um and it all it's all dependent on the area and property that's a that's a good point. I mean, the uh, this property that we're talking about, seven or eight acres of ag in the middle of it, like surrounded by giant big blocks of timber and basically the only ag around. And so there is a, um, a two or three acre block of timber on this 20 acre property. And, you know, you hear Don Higgins and other property management folks talking about it all the time, you know, if deer are betting on your property, the likelihood of you killing them are way higher than if they're betting on somebody else's property, even if they're bordering it, would you consider going into a piece of unhuntable timber like that two or three acre and doing some TSI to get some of that, uh, new growth in the bottom of it to get some of those deer at least betting into your property? As long as it's in a desirable location. Um, obviously I don't know what your predominant wind direction is down there. What is it? Uh, we got a lot of south winds a lot of south so i guess if if that it all, it all depends on access if you're not crop dusting or going in or that i mean i'm crop area. dusting but it's from the burritos from the gas station on the way in yeah <laughs> it all it all depends on your wind direction like what and how you access if it's in an area that's not bothered by you then i would definitely recommend going in there and doing tsi and improving the bedding because even if you can get this one one buck or one doe group there on that on that bedding area then that just brings more deer to to that area as well to whether it's rut or or late season they kind of group up to so doing that would help as long as it's not 
in an area where you're going to blow it out every time you hunt. Yeah. What's good about this area is it's on the far, um, what would that be? Far northeastern corner and it's basically a block of timber that gets untouched otherwise you can't hunt in it it's too thick to walk in and set stand locations and you'd have to trim too many shooting lanes to be able to hunt in there and it's terrible access to get into that timber so i'm like you're already not utilizing the timber to hunt so why not make that bedding that borders pretty much directly next to your food yeah i for sure would then in, in that scenario um it would it would just be like, like you said, if you're not doing anything with it now, you might as well try to make it better bedding, even if you're not going to hunt it. That's a good point. So do you consider, if you can see through it, do you consider that bedding or does it need to be way thicker for you to consider that bedding? I know some deer will bed in it regardless if you can see through it, but what would be ideal bedding in like a, a timber situation? It, it It's all dependent on the time of year. I mean, if you if you look at at Wisconsin in summer or any any warm state in summer when the deer have their velvet, I tend to see them in in the open oak country where there's not a ton of ground level vegetation. They're just getting that shade all day long, and they can withstand being in an area like that in bachelor groups just because their testosterone hasn't kicked off yet. But once they shed their velvet, um, then uh, then they definitely like to be in that thicker stuff. And then come late season again, they'd actually prefer a, a south-facing slope that with open oaks that they're absorbing the sunlight up all day long on that south-facing slope. But for the most part, you definitely want thicker cover because um, that's going to be the time period of the year that you're going to be hunting them is like September through December, January. They're going to want to be in that thick cover for the most part. That's a good point. How do you go about advising people on TSI or any timber improvement? Do you, do you use that something you put in a lot of your plans to create yeah. more bedding? The way I do it, and um, there's a similar guy doing it out there, Brett Smith, is he makes sure that as long as it's available, that the, the timber source there, uh, he puts in like select cuts or clear cuts on, on a lot of the properties. So it helps pay for the consultation. That way you're kind of getting my information for free and it's providing better bedding and, and food and, and a layout of your property um, without you actually having to pay for it too much. Cause you'll get a lot of that money back from, from the timber harvest and, and your property is just going to improve tremendously. But in a scenario like that, it all depends um, what kind of, of vegetation is around if there's a lot of invasives around there and that's just going to take over when you cut, you might not want to cut. Um, otherwise you can, when you cut, take all the, in, in, a, in a scenario like that, where you have like two, three acres, you're going to have to do it yourself, right? You're not, no loggers right. yep. want to come in and, and do that for 17 trees or whatever it is. So I'd recommend, it's, it's all dependent hinge cutting and, and planting different species in there as well to, to try to add something that's not there, different diversity. But um, usually I try not to recommend just hinge cutting because that's like a lot of maintenance to keep up with. Um, not a lot of people talk about that, but because after three years, you're going to have a really overgrown thick area and then it's going to start getting shaded out by all the new growth in like three to five years. 
So you got to recut that new growth down and then keep, keep uh, the access trails and entrance routes in those bedding areas clear. So the deer keep using it consistently, but um, it's, it's all dependent. Uh, I don't know what I would do in that scenario, probably try hinge cutting and, and planting some new trees that, that would be beneficial to have. What's the, uh, what's the hinge cutting like for people that want to know a little bit more about that? What's the kind of high level technique on a, for a semi-pro hinge cutter that's just starting out? So basically the first thing I would do, if you want to try it, go get a nice chainsaw, go get the right equipment for it, helmet, ear protection, the chaps. So you don't like cut your leg off or anything like that. Yeah. And then, I oh, should don't listen to this podcast. You're fine. <laughs> yeah. And then for sure I would get, um, like a hinge cutting tool. So basically it's like a, a bar that can extend out to like 12 feet or whatever it is. And you kind of push the tree, whatever way you want it to fall. Um, that way you're kind of avoiding kickbacks when the tree gets, gets cut. Um, but basically you're, you're taking the chainsaw, you're cutting horizontally at like hip to, to chest high. And you're going to fell the tree, but keep it attached to the base. So that way the tree's still technically alive. It's still getting the nutrients from the roots. Um, and it's just going to sprout out from there. And that way it creates brows at, at deer level. And then you're allowing sunlight to come down and create new, new regen with the sunlight to the ground now. Now you typically only want to cut like, uh, the, the non-favored trees, like maybe like a locust tree or something like that. And you want to leave your, your, your good oaks and stuff. Is that right? Or do you want to, because I know, or I've heard on other podcasts that one of the main problems with hinge cutting that other people or just like uh, regular landowners have is they'll just go through whacking a chainsaw about everything. And then yeah. sooner or later, it's just like, well, you just now cut down possibly 25% of your, your, your food source, which would be like the oaks and stuff. Is, yeah. is that kind of a, a problem? Yeah, it can be. And that's why I tried to stay away from it. Cause if you've got 40 acres of trees that you don't want to cut, you, you don't want to hinge cut in that. You just want to select cut, get money back and then leave certain, um, maybe like acorn bearing trees that, that the deer will be able to still use. Um, otherwise you're kind of, yeah, you're definitely taking out trees that, that are going to help the deer more than they would on the ground. The see, I appreciate you walking us through all the habitat stuff. That stuff's fascinating as a, if Joe Biden gives me a good tax cut enough one year, I might be a <laughs> landowner. Um, but it doesn't seem to be in my near future. So that's the thing though, is, uh, for some reason, there's a lot of people that either send emails or like ask on TikTok, you know, oh, you, you all need to talk about habitat management management and we're like the only habitat management we've ever done is like bring a weed eater out there and like weed eat around like the corn feeder or your stand or something like that yeah (laughs) yeah we're not allowed to bait in wisconsin though so that's a little different Uh, we got yeah (laughs) i guess legally (laughs) that's funny no so i know you had a a really successful season this last season so Talk me through a little bit, um, maybe in chronological order of kind of how your last season laid out and kind of what went into when you, when you started scouting, what your strategy was, what you were going after and then kind of how it ended up. Yeah. So it was, it was a a new game for me this last year, just because 
we had just bought the farm. So right away getting it ready was, was tough. I mean, it was already laid out decent. Um, but the access trails he had were not good. So I had to do a ton of, of redoing the access for, for the ATVs and everything. Um, I had to set up like 15 ladder stands on the property, which takes a long time putting those things together. It takes like 30, 45 minutes each stand, putting them together, let alone hanging them, picking good spots. Um, so just like the typical, you buy a new farm, you have to do all the improvements right away. I hate that. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've never done it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the best part about it, right? Um, and then I added probably seven acres worth of food plots. And then I had two acres worth of corn and beans left out for the farmer. Um, so I wanted it to be like ready to hunt the first year. So um, I, I didn't do any TSI or logging because I didn't want to make any improvements that would worsen the hunting or, or help the neighbors more than it would us. So that was something that I kind of waited on. I just wanted to see how it hunted that first year with the improvements that I did make and then kind of go from there and create a plan. But yeah, so right away I had cameras out come July and I started getting a lot of nice deer on camera, uh, one cool buck. And then he ended up having like 14 points as a three-year-old and probably would have went like 150-ish. And uh, that was one that, that stuck out to me right away because I knew that if he got one more year, he could be a giant. Uh, uh, so did you say – you had a 153 year old. Yeah. They are different. They are different <laughs> up there. <laughs> you liar. Yeah. yeah. That was, that was a pretty cool deer. And I ended up passing that one with my bow. That was probably the toughest pass of my life. Um, in October. And I think we had 17 different three-year-old plus bucks on, on camera on 220 acres by the time October rolled around. So that was, way different than coming from northeastern wisconsin i maybe had like five or six each year on 550 acres um so getting a plan to to hunt it was was pretty easy with the right wind and, and all the different stand locations that i had set up but uh the buck that i ended up shooting i actually never had on camera until the night before and i was lucky because i took off work um, I was working at a plumbing shop actually this fall. So I took off that Thursday and Friday to go out and hunt. It was like November 3rd through the the 7th or 8th I had taken off. Um, so I was heading out there, got the notification that buck showed up and I was like, Oh, that's a pretty nice buck. Uh, so the next morning I set up in an area that was probably a hundred yards from where he was never saw anything. It was like a super uneventful sit. And then that evening I went back, decided to, to put a decoy out, a buck decoy, just to see what would happen. I had no, no prior experience with decoys really. Um, but right after I got into the stand, I blew out a really nice deer. He came in from, from the total wrong direction, got my wind, blew out. And then about, Five minutes later, I was calling my buddy and I was like, God damn it. I just spooked a giant <laughs> out of here. I was like, this, I was like, I'm such an idiot. I should not have been in this stand right now. And as I hung up, I looked down and there's a, a doe down below me. Cause I was kind of in an elevated field looking down into a bedding area with a food plot down in there. 
and uh i was looking down there and all of a sudden she runs off and that was the one the buck that i ended up shooting came out that first i didn't think it was anything big i thought maybe it was a two and a half because he had a super small body actually um because he had just been running so hard so i didn't even grab my binos or anything then finally he he kind of stepped into an opening at like 80 yards that was when i realized like oh that's a pretty nice buck so uh, grabbed my bow and I didn't know how big he was. I knew he was a nice buck. He chased her up through some super thick, like, uh, berry brush and stuff to like 15 yards. And then I just shot him right there at 15 yards and he just dropped. Um, but yeah, that one ended up going 160. Um, and that was, that was my biggest buck I've ever shot. You want to describe that buck a little bit for, for the people listening? It was uh, t- just a clean 10-pointer. I guess he went 155 and four eighths, but he had busted off like a three-inch kicker on his base and then his G4, so he would have been a 160 mainframe 10. Um, but he was like 18 and a half wide, uh, seven and a half brow on one side, seven inch on okay. the other. Um, it was actually a pretty cool buck. Uh, I've got videos of him on TikTok and Instagram and stuff, but it was actually his frame similar to like Dustin Huff's buck, I would say, but just like three years, like 70 inches smaller, (laughs) but pretty, pretty cool. I I actually got his mount back already, um, which is pretty pretty quick turnaround. Yeah. I got it back in five weeks. Dang. How many hundred dollar bills you have to send that guy? (laughs) 12, 1200 bucks. Move you up to the front of the list real quick then, huh? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, 12, it was it was a pretty cool pedestal mount that I got done with that. Oh, team, nice. but, um, and then I was able to shoot a, a six and a half year old buck with my gun up on our, on our 550 acre farming gun season as well, which was pretty cool. That was my oldest deer I've ever killed. That's awesome. Is it, I know Wisconsin has like over 600,000 people that, that freaking hunt and a lot of people gun hunting. Is it hard to get age on deer up there? Yeah. And it all depends. I mean, um, for a lot of people at three and a half, like 120 to 130, they're shooting it. Um, but the more hey, north you go, that's speaking my language. The more north you go, like the more basket rack and like forks and spikes are getting shot. And that's pretty typical. Cause a lot of people just don't own like a 40 up there. Um, so they're shooting like the first thing that moves up there which is like our 550 acre farm all around that people are shooting whatever moves. So it's pretty, pretty tough to get a good uh, age structure in the deer herd. Do you all like communicate with your neighbors on, on your private pieces at all? I've tried to. Um, it's easier in Western Wisconsin because everybody seems to, to QDM and, and do stuff like that. So it's, it's easy to tell your neighbors like, Hey, I've got this buck on camera. I'm not going to shoot him. Um, and like with that 14 pointer, I had done that with my neighbors. I kind of told them like, I'm not going to shoot this deer. If he walks out, I don't expect you to pass him if you don't want to, but just let them let, letting you know, I'm not going to shoot that deer. Um, so I think it's a good thing as long as your neighbors are somewhat in the same realm, but if you're showing them a buck that they're going to shoot and you know, they're going to shoot, I would shoot not recommend. Yeah. Yeah, I would not recommend showing them that because they're going to be hunting your property line pretty soon. Um, but yeah, it, it it can help sharing sharing with your neighbors as long as they're somewhat 
with on the same page as you are. <laughs> that made me think of uh that made me think of uh, our buddy Jake. He uh he was hunting a four and a half year old buck that was mid one seventies twelve pointer to like mainframe, and he went up to like he has like five neighbors and he uh like a few of them agreed to pass that deer and the deer was living on our buddy's property so he was like listen i'm the guy that holds the key right now i could shoot this deer i've got video of him you know and i've passed him and they were like yeah yeah we'll pass him and then one of the neighbors was like i'm not going to and he has a stand like overhanging uh his fence and opening day of rifle in oklahoma he shoots that deer and four and a half year old rack they they claimed that the deer was 184 inches i think it was a mid 170s dude um, this thing i know what you're mind. talking about yeah we'll, we'll i'm gonna to try to a, pop up a picture real quick we'll send you, you a, a, a video of it on instagram but this uh this deer was just nuts and i was thinking i was sitting back thinking about it i was like uh you know let's say this is a mid 170s four-year-old typical that that very well could be like a state record typical at five and a half or at six and a half, you know, assuming the deer put on 25, 30 inches in between three and four. And it was just like first day of rifle. You want to talk about neighbors? Oh, that was brutal. Yeah, that was with, with that 14 point. that was kind of the same, same scenario. I remember uh, it was the second to last day of our nine day gun season. And that buck got shot, um, which kind of sucked. And he was pretty cool. I get, they claim, I think he claimed it was 159 inches with a broken tine. But there's no way. When I saw him, he had everything, and he was maybe 150. Mm-hmm. Um, but but he had a lot of points and a lot of cool character to him, but but no 160, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. So um, while Jake's looking for that photo. Um, I got it. Oh, you got it? Yeah, I just sent it to him on, on Insta. Oh, yeah, check that out right quick. Let me know what you think. I remember when, when I got that video, I was like, uh, first of all, why the why are you passing this deer? Why is there a video of this? Why Dude, is they're not dead? There, yeah, there's no reason why. It still <laughs> says sending. I don't understand. Did, oh. you, did you block us, Noah? Is that it? No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You it. should get it now. Oh my gosh. It didn't look real when I got a picture of it. I was like, which fence did that come out of? That's pretty crazy. It looks like a uh like one of them South Texas deer, like on the Tenderos or whatever it is. That's what it looked like to me. That's I just, crazy. I just don't understand how 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 something that big and that symmetrical can like keep all those tines, like healthy. So, healthy what is deer. a deer like that? What would that weigh in Texas where you're at? Or is that so in I, that, that's an Oklahoma deer. Um, I've only killed one deer in Texas. I primarily hunt Oklahoma because Texas is like 98% private land and the public land system sucks here. Like um, yeah. And the high fence culture is huge <laughs> uh, down here, but that deer in Oklahoma. So I shot a seven and a half year old uh, 13 point this year. And it was actually big. That was a two thirty with that's uh not field dress. So oh. 180, so 190. Yeah. That's like pretty that. big though. That's like what we get here. Typically. But, really. the, the, like, I know you probably won't believe it, but the body sizes in Southwest Oklahoma are like night and day difference from the Eastern part of Oklahoma. Like if you get into the Southeast, you're talking Labradoodles with horns and then you go Northeast and it's just like a little bit bigger, maybe like a German shepherd, kind of like you're talking about, but yeah. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Like 
the the bigger buck that I had shot this year, that one that one only went one fifty five or one sixty dressed out, which was which is super small. The one that I shot in gun season dressed out at like two ten. Mm. So that that would have been like two fifty on the hoof around there. Gosh, dang. No, no, we've legitimately seen some hundred and twenty pound field dressed deer. Yeah, I've never seen one of those. The one I shot this year is probably one of the smaller four year olds I've ever seen. Well, um, you throw about, throw about a hundred and sixty inch rack on a hundred twenty pound body, and it looks like a state record. Yeah. How much yeah. Uh, do you think Justin's deer weighed? 115, 120. I've shot, I shot a doe this year that was bigger than a 160 inch buck that one of my uncle shot. 100%. Don't you think, Jake? You, when you got the I head mean, off this deer, you looked at it, you're like, oh, nice doe. And then there's a 165 inch rack on a cooler. You're like, yeah. It's nuts. We went to the taxidermist to pick up uh, Christie's uh, buck he shot in October. And we held that, that deer, a uh, uh, Southwest deer. Uh, to a eastern deer and like i promise you compared to that southwest deer it like the 160 incher looked like a fawn like it was it was really? crazy mm-hmm. yeah the mountain deer nuts <laughs> so did you shoot that one on public then i didn't shoot my deer this year on public i shot a, a freaking dink in kansas on public that was a that was my only public deer this year we've we've shot some pretty as a group, I mean, I'm talking about four or five people. We've got some pretty good ones over the years on public, but um seems like every other year, you know, you shoot a pretty good one on public. If in a five-year period of time I could shoot two good deer on public, I'd be like, yeah, doing pretty good, you know? It's tough to is do the, consistently. Is the pressure pretty crazy down there? Is it? Oh, my gosh. Oklahoma has become a one of the most popular over-the-counter states, and that's just because we have such good regulations for over-the-counter. One, it's extremely yeah. cheap. Two, you get two buck tags as a non-resident, and they're not bound to any zone or anything, so you could get a good piece of public and kill two of the bucks on it. So, yes, it has been exponentially worse <laughs> than it used to be. There's um, quite a few Florida hunters. Like, last, last two seasons, big, yeah, it seems like we see more out-of-staters than we do uh, Oklahoma tags. Yeah, really, a lot of folks like that. Yeah, That's going to be us in Wisconsin this year. Yep. Wisconsin's pretty pretty packed lately, but you can still pretty easily get it get it get it done if you know the right area and, and what you're doing on the public. But um, does Wisconsin have a one buck limit or a yeah a one buck limit? So you get one one bow tag. You can use all year long, um, and then you get one one gun season tag or muzzle loader tag. So the gun tag is gun or muzzle loader or okay. rifle or muzzle loader, um, but Let's say, let's say you want to shoot your your gun tag with the with the bow. You can do that. You can like technically class down. So like, you could shoot two bow bucks in a year, as long as you shot it with a gun tag in gun season. Mm. Um, but typically, like two tags. Yeah. So you can't shoot one with like a muzzleloader and then one with the rifle. No. No. See, I, I like, like that. that. And I think that's where Oklahoma kind of faults a little bit because there's a lot of people that, and again, I guess there's nothing wrong with it. Like, but I, I feel like the majority of the people feel their first buck tag with the muzzleloader and then the second one with the rifle. And those are relatively, uh, pretty close to the rut. And well, I, I mean, heck rifle season smack dab in the middle of, the, of like peak rut here. And so it's really hard and really frustrating, especially like around private land when you're like, Oh, you're chasing a good one all year. You know, you watch it through the summer 
And then literally it's just like, as soon as it starts getting good and it actually cools down, you look on Facebook and you're like, Oh, there he is. That's right. <laughs> no, so, I, ours isn't too bad. We luckily have gun season typically after the rut, um, towards the end of the rut. So I know Missouri's got, got their gun season in the rut, which can, can take a pretty big hit on your deer herd, but, uh, we're, we're pretty lucky with that. I would say. Yeah. You make a, make your rifle hunters earn it out in the cold. I like, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's awesome. So we talked about, um, a lot of habitat stuff. We talked about your, your season. Um, one of the questions that's kind of a little off the wall, a little different that we've been asking specifically for this series is if you had to boil down all the success that you and maybe the people closest to you have had into like a single word, like if to, what would that word be? So how would you sum up a successful season? What does it take? Like we've had people say it's hunting smart. I know that's two words. That one doesn't count or obsession or passion or year round hyphenated, you know, that could be one word. What would you, what would your word be? Probably just like drive. I would say you, you gotta have a good drive. Um, whether you're hunting public and this applies to everybody, you can't just, like let's say you miss a deer opening weekend or second week or something you can't like kick yourself and not go out the next weekend um you got to have the right drive you got to be willing to to take time off if you can you got to keep hunting whether even and even you just have to be like adaptable as well um if you've got a property that doesn't hunt well with the south wind go find another one there's public within an hour of everybody you can go hunt a spot there and and shoot a nice deer as long as there's one there um just having the right drive is is a big thing like i had probably hunted i don't even know how many sits this year before i shot my bow buck and uh, all day sits as well i mean it just doesn't happen like with the with the snap of your finger you just got to be in the tree to to make it happen are you a are you the dwayne the rock johnson fan the rock yeah no i mean i guess i mean i've seen his movies but i don't follow him too i well. didn't know where he was going with that either so it's <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> it's <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> no uh so even though this this uh the series is called successful seasons and obviously you had one we also like asking people a question that or not, i guess not a question but like we had this little mini series called like close, but no cigar where people talk about uh, where even if they didn't do anything wrong or something uh, you had an encounter with the deer or you got a shot opportunity and it just didn't go in your favor. The stars didn't align. So do you have a moment and it could be from years back? Uh, what's your biggest close, but no cigar moment. So I had one this year um, right after I had tagged out on my buck. Um, I went out the next day. I told my cousin to get up here cause, cause I had some daylight movement with some nice bucks. So he drove out from, from Minnesota and we were hunting that next evening and I was just filming him. Um, and we had a really nice nine point, probably 150 inch four year old come out. And, and that deer had, my dad had seen like three times in daylight. My uncle had, had seen once in daylight a couple days prior. So um, it was just, 
he he came through. I did a grunt or two, and I was just hoping he would come up. But he was just on a doe and and wasn't really necessarily going to leave her. So I guess that was probably a pretty close scenario we got this year. We got to like sixty yards of that deer. Um, I've got plenty of other ones that I've like messed up on a shot or went in with the wrong wind. I mean, I've got probably more fails than I do successes and I'm sure everybody has that, but um, 60 yards isn't close enough to send a, send an arrow. Not. So he has never shot anything too big. So I looked over at him and I was like, uh, if he comes into 40, are you going to shoot? And I looked at him and he was literally just shaking and his knees were bucking. I'm like, dude, you I don't even know if you can hit this thing at 20 yards, but uh, definitely not going to shoot at 60. He's not, he's just like a typical hunts one or two weekends of the year uh, with the bow and, and doesn't like practice a ton with his bow where he'd feel comfortable at 40 or 50. But yeah, I'm, he was not in, in the right mindset to shoot at that deer at that point in time. Well, I can't blame him. Uh, this, yeah, this past season, uh, we were down on Oklahoma public and we've been getting our butts kicked for like five, six days into this trip. And it was like one of the last, it was the second to last morning before we were going to leave and head to Kansas. And I was having a terrible morning. I, was running late to the spot. I get halfway to, to my tree and I was like, I don't, I don't have my bino harness. And if I don't have my bino harness, I can't range the deer because my bino harness tucked in one of the pockets. So I have to go all the way back and no, no, no. I figured out, I forgot my release. That's what it was. And then when I got <laughs> to the truck, I realized I seen my bino harness sitting in the seat and I was like, I'm an idiot. So two birds, one stone went back to the tree and it was just now starting to get a little bit daylight as I, uh, as I start climbing the tree and I take like, take my backpack off and I hear deer yelling at me, telling me I'm being too loud. And I'm like, I know, just give me a minute. <laughs> and I get like three sticks up in the tree and I go to reach for my platform. And I have my platform like uh, gear tied to the side of my saddle. And when I went to reach for it, it falls. And luckily there's a big old rock right underneath my tree. And so it just clung, like started clinging on that thing. And then the deer probably 70 yards further than when I first heard it blow yelled at me again. And at this point I was just like, I'm about to just go back to my truck and take a nap. But I said, you know, I set everything up, pulled my bow up. I didn't have any of my camera equipment set up yet. So I was like, I just got to take a minute and just, you know, uh, let's cool see. Down. Exactly. And I sat there like 15 minutes. And by this time it's, it's purely daylight. And I say all that to say this, there's a buck coming in that, that, that actually came in 25 yards. And when I seen this deer, like I was not in the, the right mindset and I tried to range it and it might like, I couldn't range it. Like it was going 74, 25, you know, 35, just everywhere. So I, I ended up soaring an arrow over the dang the dang things back, but I can understand where he was coming from. Like, even if usually you think you're steady, there's those times where it just gets to you. <laughs> yeah, that'll that'll happen. So you guys are saddle hunters then? Uh, Sadly. This last year is my first time. So Yeah, I switched uh, over to that like two, three years ago. So that was that definitely with oh, I mean it's night and day going from right. a climber or a hang on to that. Um 
but yeah, I saw some new, I don't know if you pay attention to like the ATA shows and stuff like that, but I saw some cool sticks came out from, uh, I don't know if it's Tim, is it Timberline? Timber Ninja? I don't know. Timber Ninja. Yes. Uh, the, the carbon fiber, uh, double step sticks that they have that came out. And those are actually pretty reasonably priced. I think it's like 220 or 230 for a, a three pack. So that seems pretty it's reasonable. Sad that's cheap these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So well, hold on, hold on. Are you, are you a one? Uh, yeah. Are you a one sticker or no? No, not, not man enough for it. I don't, I don't understand the concept. I mean, a lot of the, I feel like for one stick and I feel like you have to have like a, a tree with no branches. I don't know. Oh, I, feel 100%. Like, I can kind of see where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the places I hunt that you're not going to find that. And if you do, do you want to be in a tree with no branches? I don't want to be in a tree with no branches. <laughs> I'd rather be, have, have a lot of cover behind me. So, and uh, I can get up the tree pretty quick with, with, uh, four sticks and an aider and, and definitely get high enough with that too. So I don't know. I've never, never decided to try one stick in. Yeah. Well, uh, we have a buddy that, that, uh, we've camped by before and, he actually won sticks and he was kind of showing us how it works. And he looked like he was doing like Pilates hanging from a tree, like trying, trying to reach back and get the stick. And it's just like, listen, I don't know how that's stealthy. I mean, I mean, I'm sure if you do it long enough, it can be stealthy, but that like in a way it almost looks silly. But then again, I'm, I'm pretty slow at things. So. Yeah. I don't know. I, I can get in pretty quiet and, and quick with the, with the regular setup I have. So I don't, I haven't decided to switch over to that yet. Right. This baby, this if, if somebody showed me and it was good, then maybe I'd try it. But this guy that is our hunting camp neighbor, he was like, all right, step one, full, pull 40 feet of rope out of your bag. I was like, all right, you lost me. <laughs> there's, there's no, like he pulls it out. It looks like a fireman over his shoulder. I was like, no, dude, <laughs> I'm not bringing on that. Yeah, I don't know. Do you don't you like rappel down too? Is that kind of? A, I think, I think, I think, so. I think you do. Yeah, and then like there's a way to like take your loop off and it all falls down. I'm like, Mm-mm. as soon as I they make never, the rappel rope like Bluetooth, then I might try it. Yeah, I've never like I don't understand the concept. Like when you're going up to one stick, do you throw it up and then like how do you get the rope around the tree to to get up or do you just? I don't know. I never understood the concept it's weird because they like use their um their uh what's it called the rope that goes around the tree and you would normally saddle hunt what's oh, it called? just the linesman yeah yeah like a lineman's or just a regular tether rope your tether i think that's what it's called yeah um, and they like hang from they hang from that but like the 40 foot of rape rope is basically their tether when they're going up and I've watched people do it and they're like, all right, then you just go kind of sideways and you grab it, the stick, and then you put it above your head again. And then you put, you climb up the aider. And I'm just like, dude, I'm one greasy fingertip morning away from being like, there goes my whole setup. <laughs> I'm just like hanging from the tree. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I just, I don't know if I can do it. The saddle is easy enough to set up with just three or four sticks. So I don't think, hey, I don't, don't I don't have it. the need to do that. Yeah. No. No. Well, no, we really appreciate you coming on. Um, for folks that want to connect with you or maybe want to have you do some habitat plan or design layout on their property, where can they connect with you and figure all that stuff out? Probably just 
my Instagram handle. You can reach out to that. Um, I've got some stuff in the works. I'm going to be making a, a website here this week. Uh, well, it's already in the works, but I'm going to gonna be making a website to, to be able to start doing my stuff uh, individually and, and do that. Um, so that'll be up here pretty soon. So I'll have a link to that at some point. Uh, but, but Instagram or, or email, it's probably the easiest way to reach me. And what is your Instagram and email for people that aren't listening to yeah, the, so, or watching the video? So my Instagram is, is Noah Gould 42. And there's like a little, the, the dash between Noah and Gould. And then uh, my email is noahgould165 at yahoo.com. Still using Yahoo. When did you make that sucker? 2003? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 2008, probably. <laughs> I've got a Gmail as well that, that I use pretty more often for work. But Yeah. Um, well, there we go. Cool. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for checking out the Hunter's Advantage podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you in the next episode.